When you start to go back and examine, do some archaeology on the family dynamics, on the emotions of the past, you start to see, what did that do to me? How did I respond to that? What did I learn from that? And how might I be in my marriage relationship today still living out or dealing with or processing some of those hard experiences? I don't want to use the word trauma lightly because I think it can be overused in our culture today. There's a there's a clinical diagnosis of trauma that I don't want to call every event a traumatic event, but there are certainly emotional events in our lives that stick with us and shape us and, and identifying those and then doing that emotional archeology span to say, how was I shaped by that event and how might that be impacting relationship I have today with my spouse? You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing strength for today and hope for tomorrow for caregivers and their families. Connect with Colleen and other caregivers on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, where you can find a community of people who get it and explore all our resources. Now, here's Colleen. Hello once again. Reframing Ministries, I am so thrilled with my guest today, Bob Lapine, who is a pastor in Little Rock, Arkansas, and before that worked with Family Life Today, because we're going to talk on a subject that Bob is very familiar with, and we all are familiar with, and that is relationships and marriage. I do not think there is a hotter topic right now than how we are getting along as people, especially in marriage. Um, You wrote this book, Bob, Build a Stronger Marriage, The Path to Oneness, which is so fabulous. And it's it's not long. It's got great tips in it. And I know you're going to encourage others through this. So as we are in 2023 facing emotional upheaval, Mm -hmm. marriages are suffering. And they're suffering even more when you add things like trauma disabled kids, caregiving, the the enormous responsibilities at hand. So talk to us a little bit about where do we start when we find ourselves disillusioned in marriage? Well, thanks for the opportunity to do this. I've I've been looking forward to to being with you. And um, I I wrote the book, and of course, my heart for marriage really grew over the years of my involvement uh, with Family Life Today. But I I wrote this because I know so many couples who are at a point in their marriage where they would say, you know, we're not in the ditch, but it's wobbling. And it's not what I want it to be or what I hoped it would be. And you're right, life all of the complexity of life can kind of crowd out the the centrality of our marriage relationship. And I think this is where couples need to pull back and prioritize and say, what really does matter in life? What do we care most about? What are we going to, if, if we could look ahead 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, what will matter to us most? And are we doing the things today? Are we building the things today that we want to be enduring in, in the future. And so this is a book to try to help 
uh, couples troubleshoot some of the, the challenging issues that they're facing in their marriage and try to, to give them some direction on how you can address those issues and grow together as a couple. One of the things I learned, Colleen, over the years of working at Family Life was that the natural drift in every relationship is a drift toward isolation. When we get married, we think we're naturally going to grow closer and closer together. And yet what happens is we get married and we just find little ways that we begin to move apart, isolate from one another. And that's when I heard that was normal and natural, that was actually a relief to me because I thought it was just us, right? You're not the only one. <laughs> yeah. So, so to hear that this is what normally happens in a marriage relationship, I thought, well, okay, so if we're all going through this, then let's talk together about how we can pursue the oneness and the intimacy that we really long for and hope for. Absolutely. And I think when people get married, what we don't realize is we have an invisible massive U-Haul of baggage behind us. And that is discovered when our expectations are disappointed. We don't even know we have the expectations, but there's a saying, you complete me. Yeah. And I think how much, how many people marry on the premise of this is going to complete me. Can you speak into that? Oh, sure. First of all, I think you're right to acknowledge the fact that we get married bringing a lot into the marriage that's unseen. We don't even realize we're bringing it in. I, I start in the book by talking about how we need to go back and examine um, our past history to understand what we may have brought with us into the marriage relationship. But the idea that you're talking about here that we look for a marital partner to complete us is really the expectation that we have that um, all of our longings, hurts, desires, wants, all of this is going to be filled in by another human being. Well, there's no human being on the planet capable of doing that for you. And, and I think oftentimes as husbands or wives, we're looking for our spouse to do what Jesus is supposed to do, wants to do, is is here to do for us. We're, we're looking for our spouse to be um, our savior, and and Jesus is our savior. So it's it's not wrong to have expectations of one another in a marriage relationship, but it's wrong when those expectations exceed what God designed for another human being to uh, to accomplish in a marriage relationship. Well, so when we do have disappointed expectations, talk to us a little bit about conflict and how to move towards some of that resolve, which begins with um being willing to enter into conflict and how to fight fair. Yeah, this is uh, this is so critical. I remember hearing uh, a radio interview. I, I, this was back in the 90s. And I was getting ready to speak uh, at a marriage event in Seattle, Washington. I'm driving around in Bellevue, Washington, and I'm listening to the radio. It's, we're, it's Friday morning. We're speaking that night at seven. And I hear the radio interview and it was Gary Smalley on the radio interview. He wrote a lot of books on marriage. And he said, I'm, I'm going to tell you the one thing, if couples can get this one thing, this will revolutionize their marriage. And I thought, well, I better figure out what that one thing is because I'm about to speak on this tonight. I hope I know the one thing. But he said, research shows that couples who have the ability to resolve conflict in a marriage relationship, those are the couples whose marriages go the difference. And I remember thinking, 
Well, that does make sense. If we have the skill of knowing how to seek and grant forgiveness, how to restore what has been broken, how to rebuild trust in a marriage relationship, then then that that's the, the functional skill that will help us through all kinds of conflicts that are going to come up. Because here's the reality. It's not whether you're going to have conflict in a marriage. It's when you're going to have conflict. We're all going to have conflict. That's common to all marriages. So the question is, do we know what God's word tells us to do when conflict comes up? And and let me just say this, because I think this is so important for couples to recognize. Uh, Most of the conflict we experience, the biblical response to that conflict is to choose to overlook it. So in, in the New Testament, we read love covers a multitude of sins. And and so the little irritations, the, the little things that wear on us over time, the fact that my wife asked me to do something and I forgot about it, or that that she she disappointed me in some way, we have to develop the skill of knowing how to overlook that. The Proverbs say it's a man's glory to overlook an offense. And so for most of it, we just have to pour grace, just pour grace on top of those things that pop up in a marriage and save the conflict resolution for the real big issues that that require us to to follow a biblical pattern for addressing the conflict seeking forgiveness granting forgiveness and then rebuilding trust when when trust has been violated i mean that is there there's so much meat and so many points in that what do you do when one partner is willing and pursuing that, and the other one is saying, I'm done. Well, you, you start with what the Bible tells us in Romans 12, 18. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, I love the fact that the Bible is practical enough to say, not just be at peace with all men, which is the goal, right. but it says, if possible, as far as it depends on you. And so our posture is is to say before the Lord, Lord, I want to do what I can to pursue peace. I, I want to be humble in my approach for this. And and often remember Jesus saying, we're really good at being able to spot specks in our spouse's eyes. So the starting point in all of this, before we get to, well, I'm willing, but my spouse isn't, hold on, have you really done the spiritual spade work that we need to be doing to ask the question, have I looked to see what's in my own life that I need to repent of, that I need to confess, that I need to ask forgiveness for? Galatians 6 is a place I often go because the Bible says there, if you see a brother who's caught in a sin, and oftentimes in a marriage, we can see our spouse and we say, I think there's a sinful pattern. The way you're talking to me is is sinful. This is not honoring to God. We can see that. If you see a brother caught in a sin, you who are spiritual. Now, that means you who, because none of us is perfectly spiritual, but you who have taken the appropriate spiritual steps, you've prayed, you've sought the Lord, you've asked for godly counsel, you've examined your own heart, you're ready to go and and 
confront somebody or seek to restore another person only after you've done that spiritual heart work in your own life. I think all too too often we can rush right at the other person and say, well, I see this and you're wrong and you need, rather than doing the spiritual work in our own life before we seek to, to resolve the conflict. Absolutely. And in one um, video that I watched, you talked about doing a family timeline and it, mm-hmm. uh, it's a, it's a personal family inventory. Explain that process because we have done that and it is so powerful. Yeah. It's so revealing. It, it is revealing. And I think this starts with us going back to, um, to those patterns that we bring with us into marriage. Uh, there's a reason why when you go to see a counselor, a counselor will often get to a point where he'll say, tell me about your parents. Tell me about the family you grew up in. Because what gets hardwired into us as we're growing up is how to relate to people based on what happened in our family dynamic. So if if conflict in your family was swept under the rug, not talked about, we just, we isolate, we get quiet, we just turn on the silent treatment, then that's what you learn growing up. If conflict in your house was big and loud and we get expressive and then we hug each other at the end and we cry and then that's what you grow up. Well, you get a hugger and and a, or a loud hugger together with a silent person and they don't know how to relate to one another. So to go back and say, what did I learn about relationships growing up to, to be able to say you know, one of the questions I ask in the book is, can you identify three or four things on your family timeline that were significant traumatic events. Yes. And and what what did that do to shaping how you handle relationships? So when I was in eighth grade, I got called out of class and um, I, I walk into the principal's office thinking, what did I do? Am I in trouble? There's a police officer there. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I, um, I had been offered drugs by a guy at school. And I thought maybe the police was, was there following up on that. They somehow knew. Well, it wasn't that at all. The the, uh, the principal said, would you sit down? And then he said to me, your, your sister was killed today in a car wreck in Illinois. And the officer is here to take you home. Now, th- my sister was nine years older than me. Uh, I, I could go through a long family dynamic. There had been conflict between my sister and my parents. She and her husband had gotten married uh, without anybody attending. I came home from school one day and my mom said, oh, your sister got married today. So that's a lot of the family dynamic. I I tell you all of that to say, when you start to go back and examine, do some archaeology on the family dynamics, on the emotions of the past, you start to see what did that what did that do to me? How did I respond to that? What did I learn from that? And how might I be in my marriage relationship today still living out or dealing with or processing some of those hard experiences? I, I don't want to use the word trauma lightly because I think it can be overused in our culture today. There's a there's a clinical diagnosis of trauma that I don't want to call every event a traumatic event, but there are certainly emotional events in our lives that stick with us and shape us and and identifying those and then doing that emotional archaeology to say what did that do to me and and how how was i shaped by that event and how might that be impacting relationship i have today with my spouse so it sounds to me like avoiding 
discussing anything hard or mm. most things difficult was the pattern that you were raised with. How, yeah. how did that play out in your marriage? Well, I'm, I'm a peacemaker in a marriage, in, in our marriage. And so I, I want everything to be right and good. And if there's, if there's any threat of conflict, I can get maybe panicky and I, I want to do, I want to get it cleared up. Are we okay? Is everything all right? And, um, I, I don't know that I really want to tackle the hard stuff. I'd rather kind of sweep that away, but can we just get back to, to where we're smiling at each other again? And, um, what you have to recognize is that's putting it's like the the patches you used to put on your balloon your your tires and your bike you know that'll hold the air for a while but those patches never did the trick you got to get a new new balloon tire after a while well so that's in our marriage i think we've had a pattern over the years of wanting to superficially address and just kind of can we play nice with one another and and not deal with this i've also i'm a silent treatment guy when it comes to conflict i think the longest has been, I think three days was as long as I've gone with what we call the cordial silent treatment. So I'll be polite <laughs> and nice to you. I'll, I'll get, I, I'm going to the store now. I'll see you later. I'll communicate like that with kind of a smug superiority, like I'm the mature one here. But um, yeah, I think we've gone, I, I, I think we've gone three days. In, in the last year, it, 24 hours was the longest we went on that. But that, we know that that's our pattern. We give each other some time and process all of that. And then we recognize we got to get together and and we've got to be honest with one another. And part of being honest is not just to confront what I see in you, but being honest about what do I know about me and what's going on in my own heart? What are my fears? What are my hopes? What's what's making me angry in this situation? Being able to address that. I think you just touched on one of the most vital pieces of marriage is knowing oneself and saying, this is what I need, and then communicating that, because we're not mind readers. How many times have we been disappointed because we wanted our spouse to read our mind, and they cannot do that. So we can't put it on them for not following through on something that we never stated as a need. So let's talk about just some common triggers in marriage and how to go about resolving those, and then let's move into some more some more things that I know our community is really dealing with. Yeah. When we talk about common triggers, I I think often um, our our communication, our failure to communicate, the expectations that you talked about, those are what are underlying a lot of this. It's just relationship skill building, knowing Marianne and I will talk and, and, uh, we'll, we'll talk about plans for something we're going to do. And then a few weeks later, I'll be, talking about it. She said, well, we never really talked about that. And I'll say, no, no, we talked about it. And and what, what she means and what I mean when we say we talked about it are two different things. Interesting. So I exchanged information with her about that, but we never talked about it. We never really had a, you know, we never sat down and said, okay, let's think this. She needs more processing time than I do. I'm kind of quick and moving on to the next thing. She needs more time to talk. So just recognizing our communication style differences, that's, I think, a common issue in a lot of marriages. Expectations, you talked about the unspoken, unmet mind reader expectations. I thought you would do that. Well, why did you think that? Did I say that? No, I just always thought that's what was going to happen. But, you know, here's, here's again where the Bible's so helpful, because James tells us that Whatever the conflict is, 
here's what's behind it. This is James 4, where it says, why is there fighting and quarreling among you? Well, we'd all like to know that. Why is it? And James goes on to say, here's the reason. It's because you want and you do not have. The reason we get locked up in conflict so often is because of our own selfishness. And that doesn't mean that your spouse hasn't done something wrong or violated. I'm not trying to, to, to say there's, there's no culpability on the part of your spouse. But I will say that we have to pull back at the very beginning and we have to ask, okay, what's the selfishness inside of me? What's driving this? I, I wrote a book where I went through 1 Corinthians 13, that love chapter, and looked at it through a marriage lens. And, and started to look at all of these characteristics. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't seek its own, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. So many of these, so important in the marriage relationship. And so much of our own selfishness is exposed. I mean, I don't have to get very far in that passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. And I go, okay, I'm I'm not there yet. I yes. still have work to do. <laughs> I can't get past number two. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I think we have to start in all of this. Colleen, I've, I've, I've spoken at enough marriage events over the years where I've started by saying, if you came to this hoping, I hope this guy can finally fix my spouse. I've been trying for years. I, I say to folks, here's the bad news. I can't fix your spouse. Number two, I'm not even going to talk to your spouse this weekend. I'm here to talk to you. That's great. And I don't want you to be thinking about your spouse and what your spouse is doing right or wrong. I just want you to be hearing, what do I need to hear? And how does God want me to change? And how can I be the husband or wife God's called me to be? And let's make that our focus rather than all the things my spouse is doing wrong. Thanks again for listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast. If Reframing Ministries has been helpful in your life walk, we'd be honored to have you partner with us in prayer and in financial support. We operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. Would you consider giving just $10 a month to help caregivers and their families receive resources full of help, hope, and healing? You can partner with us at reframingministries.com give. That plays into a very core issue of shame. When we are, when we have shame, then there's a less capacity to take responsibility for yeah. one's um, wrongdoings or to say, I am so sorry. There's a defensive posture. How do we work through that shame barrier? Well, shame is is such an issue for so many not just in marriage, but I, I think it's a debilitating issue for people trying to live their their spiritual lives. Honestly, I think it is one of the devil's best tools to try to incapacitate Christians today. Yes. And and that's why the Bible refers to the devil as the accuser of the brethren. So what he does is he keeps reminding you of your sins, your mistakes, and your failures and says, how can you say you're this kind of person when this is true about you? How can, how can you even be, uh, how can you think anybody would love you when this is a part of your pet? So he just keeps bringing all of this up. Here's the thing. He keeps bringing up things that God has said, oh, I've forgotten about that. I mean, think about the God of the, the omniscient God of the universe has chosen to remember your sins no more. 
And and so Romans 8, 1 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I, I checked the Greek. The word no means no condemnation, not a little. There's no condemnation. God has put your sins as far as the east is from the west. He's put them behind his back where he doesn't look at them anymore. It's at the bottom of the sea. He remembers it no more. And there's a hymn we sing at our church that's one of my favorite hymns, and it's called Before the Throne of God Above. The second verse in that hymn says this, and I want I want our, our listeners, our viewers to hear this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We have to, if we are believers, then we have to believe that's true. And when guilt comes up, we have to recognize where that voice is coming from. Shame, there's no shame for those who are in Christ. So we have to go, this is the accuser. God has has declares me free. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm going to live out that identity and not be incapacitated by the shame that the devil wants to throw at me. Well, there is so much research right now on shame, and I'm sure you're familiar with Kurt Thompson, his book, The Soul of Shame. And literally, it's a disintegration hmm. of our of our brain and our physiology. And so we're, li- we're living disintegrated lives, which is probably why we move toward isolation yeah. when we are separate. I love that you put in some of these notes, Philippians 2, 2, where Paul says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So I circled the verbs by thinking, by having, being united and intent. Mm-hmm. Now, how can two people who are at odds start becoming aligned with those four things? Yeah. So th- th- this is this is what unity, the goal in marriage is oneness. What God makes two into one. It, it's an ongoing process of becoming one together over the course of marriage. This is what Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 2 is not talking about marriage specifically, but I think it applies perfectly in a marriage context. And, and the way we become united, and this, this is, this is a, a, it takes a couple, it took me a long time to recognize this. We think the way to become united is I need to convince you to think like me. No, I need to convince you to think like me. We'll be united when you think more like me. Can't you just get it? <laughs> That's <laughs> exactly. Right. And when when the Bible's calling us to one-mindedness, it's not you need to think like me or I need to think like you. It's we both need to think like God. And so to to pull back and say our unity is not me convincing you I'm right or you convincing me you're right, but both of us coming together and saying, what would the Lord have here? What's his design? What's his purpose? How can we be united in him, his purposes, so that when we're on opposite sides of the, the table on something and we don't agree on something, the question we should be asking is, what would the Lord have us do here? What 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 would please the Lord in this situation? And do we need godly counsel to help us identify that? Because I may be thinking, well, it's what I want. I think that's what the Lord wants. Well, not 
always, you, you need to get somebody who can maybe step in and say, let's examine what it is that you want. And is that a godly desire? And let's examine what's going on with. So let's get on the same page and be functioning together of one mind with what the Lord wants us to be doing. So here's a difficult thing with the community that is a lot of the community connected with reframing ministries. They're caregivers. They are um, struggling with deep grief, with ongoing stress. Mm. And the way to raise a child or the the way to take care of an aging parent, there may not be a one right way or a one wrong way. Right. And that builds so much distance. And I know right now someone is listening going, that's exactly where I am. I cannot yeah. stand my partner. They won't listen because my mother or my child is suffering. And this is the way we should go. And the other partner is saying, but we don't have the money for it, or we don't have the time, or we don't have the capacity. How do we even begin to build that bridge? Yeah, there are a lot of issues in scripture that are not clearly laid out. Right. Um, and and so these are wisdom issues, and this is where we have to come at these wisdom issues and say, okay, how, how does the Bible inform my thinking on this? I, I think for most of us, we start with what's my impulse on this? And again, our impulse is based on family history and all of the things that we bring in. So it's it's not wrong to say what's my impulse, but then we need to test our impulse with what is biblical wisdom say on this? What does godly counsel say on this? Mm-hmm. And and again, you may come to a place where there's not a right or a wrong answer, but you need to try to be of one mind in, in that situation. And, and that's where I think Marianne and I, as we've looked at things and say, you know, there's not a biblical right or wrong here. So we're just going to have to, in this situation, um, often go with the person who is is facing the the stress the, the the most profoundly, and say I'm I'm going to defer to what is the way you want to go in this because this is, you're at the higher stress point on this than I am, and I want the relief to come to you, and then try to support one another in in those situations. And again, this is where I would say if you if you can't get there on your own. Get godly help. Get a pastor. Get a counselor. Get somebody who can sit down with you. Somebody who would say has godly wisdom. Invite another mature couple over for dinner, and after you've had a few bites to eat, say, "Can we tell you the real reason we asked you over here? We we have a we're hung up on something, and we just want to hear from you." And if and I think there I think there needs to be more of that inside the church and in the body of Christ, where we're just being honest with one another about the realities of what we're facing and we're we're learning from one another and growing from one another and getting godly input and wisdom from people who are in our lives somebody you'd look at and say i'd like my marriage to look like theirs have them over for dinner and say can you help us we need some help here yeah and you're a pastor so you know this and i grew up in a pastor's home the church can be sometimes the hardest place to find that yeah and what can we do as individuals to become more safe in that way? Well, I think that's one of the reasons um, it's one of the hardest places is because uh, a lot of people don't feel safe about being transparent. They've seen hypocrisy and Phariseeism uh, come up. They've they've tried to be transparent and vulnerable, and they found they were canceled as a result, or they were shunned or excluded. Yep. And, and that's tragic. I think that's got to be in leadership. That's got to be modeled, that kind of vulnerability. I like what Matt Chandler, who's a pastor there in Dallas, has to say. He says at their church, he says, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. 
And, and so that's the approach we need to be having. And yes, you do need to try to find a safe place and safe people who you can share life with and, and be open and vulnerable with. And um, I, w- I wish I had the formula. I wish there was a, a COVID test for safety in a relationship, you know, where if we could just swab your nose, we could know whether you're safe or not as <laughs> somebody to, to be around. But you're just going to have to go gently and, and kind of test the waters and say, is this okay? And is this safe? And here's the thing I will say, it's not always going to work and you're going to find yourself getting hurt and and you're going to want to pull back and say, I'm never going to do that again. Jesus gives us a model when when he was persecuted, reviled, when he was when he was spat upon, when he was uh, not cared for, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So I, I think you you step out, you try this, you know this is what God wants. If you get your toe stubbed, that hurts. You give it some time to heal, but that doesn't mean you say, I'm never going to go walking again. You get back up and you say, I got to try this again because I know this is what God wants. Because when you find it, it's revolutionary, it's transformative, you find life there. And so you keep looking for it and you keep trusting the Lord with your hurts when it's not handled well. Did you ever, I mean, we're just going to get down to brass tacks. Did you ever have a point in your marriage where you said, I don't think this is going to work. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was early on. Um, we had, we'd gotten married. We were living in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the time. I lost my job. Um, two weeks after I lost my job, my wife calls and says, we're going to have baby number two. Oh. So it's the spring of what would it be 84 and and uh, I'm out of work. She's expecting and I've got to figure out what to do. And I'm, I'm looking for job options. And there were some there in Tulsa, but the job that really seemed like it was the best right fit for me was in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, Marianne had lived her whole life in Tulsa. So her family was there. It's where she lived. It was everything. So when I say, I think we need to move to Phoenix for this job, she pregnant with our second child with a three-year-old at home. She says, okay. And I, I, she meant, okay. I mean, she was, she was on board with that decision. I moved out to Phoenix before uh, she did. She stayed to try to sell the house in Tulsa. I'm in Phoenix trying to get things. I'm looking for a new house for us to move into. And I find one that I think will work. And I call her and say, I, I think I've got a house for us. Now, I wasn't smart enough to go, you ought to, you ought to fly out here and see it. Okay. <laughs> that's that's just all a, right. We're going to get a little, it. <laughs> little pro tip. Don't buy a house that your spouse hasn't seen. Okay? That is golden. <laughs> yeah. So at, in, at the last week in July, my wife with the moving van and our three-year-old, my six-month pregnant wife, I guess she was four, five months at that point, she pulls into Phoenix. It's the last month in, last week in July. It's hot. She sees for the first time the house I bought that is not the house she would have bought, that she's going, what, you didn't, what about this? Did you even notice this? And we move in to start our new life together in Phoenix. Wow. She's She's got no friends, no network, and I'm leaving in the morning to head off to work. And she's at home with a three-year-old and she's pregnant. In a house and that she, she hates. Yes. 
And I would come home at night and I would say, I'm home. And she'd say, hi. And I mean, I, we don't, we never got a formal diagnosis, but if it wasn't clinical depression, you know, she was, she was deeply sad at the events of her life and her circumstances. And she was not masking it at all. And I would say, well, let's, let's go out to eat because there wasn't any food there. Nobody made any dinner for me. So let's go out to eat. Let's, I was trying to find whatever I could do to kind of break this log jam and get her out of the funk. The, I remember the Olympics were on. She used to love gymnastics, watching the gymnastics. And she didn't care about the Olympics. She didn't care about anything. She was miserable. And after about three weeks of that, I remember being out in the backyard one night. I think she'd gone to bed and I was just kicking dirt clods in the backyard, looking up at the sky and going, okay, I'm not going to get a divorce because I'm not going to get a divorce, but I understand why people want to get a divorce. Yeah. I understand how people get to a point where they go, I, I can't take this anymore. I, I can't, if this is life, I can't do this. If, if this is what it's going to be, it's, it's miserable. Yeah. And, and I've, I've shared that story through the years and people have said, okay, so, so how'd you fix it? And I wish I said, and when we sat down one night and I finally said this, that everything now over time, the sadness began to dissipate. Actually what wound up happening is three months later, I got offered a new job in Sacramento, California. And I said, there's no way I can take this. We just moved. We just bought a house. And they said, well, here's what it pays. And I said, oh, well, I just found out how I could take that job. <laughs> yeah. And so we wound up moving again. Wow. So, so yes, this was in a five-month period. Now she's in her third trimester with her third OBGYN in a new state. But as we moved in in Sacramento in October of that year, um, the ice began to thaw a little bit. Things started to smooth out. and just over time, I, I I got my wife back. We got the relationship back. I, I wish I could say I started to recognize her emotional needs and I was there for them. I, I don't think, I just thought she just needs to to tough it up. I don't think I was a great husband during that time, but, uh, but God just brought healing to the place where we could look back on that and say, that was a dark time. Yeah. Um, but here, here's the thing I would say in the midst of that, it's what I said out in the backyard. It was already a determination in my mind. It, we're not getting a divorce. Somebody said to me one time, Colleen, they said, uh, if if I gave you a car on your wedding day and it was the nicest, best car, you, the, the, you, it was great. Everything you wanted in a car with every luxury detail you were looking for. And I said, this is a gift. It's yours. Here's the thing. It's the only car you will ever have for the rest of your life. Well, two things would happen. First of all, I would take really good care of that car because I know I have to. Secondly, when the car broke, I would take it in the shop and get it fixed because I don't have any, I would not start thinking, well, I wonder if I should get a new car because I don't have that option anymore. When I took the option of divorce off the table, now when things go bad in our, first of all, I need to maintain it better. (laughs) Secondly, when things break down, I got to go get it fixed because this is the only one I got. And having that as a baseline has meant security in the relationship for Marianne and me. We both look at each other and go, we're not going anywhere. So we got to get this worked out. Yeah. Let's let's work it out. And I think so many couples just have to, in their mind, make the switch and say, that's going to be off the table for us. Now, now, as a pastor, I know there are circumstances where I would say, 
if you're facing physical abuse and if if there's been desertion there, there are grounds for divorce there are times when i think divorce god has has brought divorce in as a way to deal with the hardness of a man's heart or a woman's heart in a relationship so i think i i think with a group of godly counselors involved i think there may be a reason for divorce but too many too many of the divorces that we see in our day are just things got sideways. I didn't know how to fix it. And so we just split. Yeah. And and when you take that option off the table, then now you gotta now you gotta roll up your sleeves and go, okay, let's try to fix this thing. And I do hear from a lot of people, um, there's a lot of abuse going yeah. on. And it's behind closed doors. Uh people don't see it. And when you bring it up, it's it's denied or the pastor most often would say, well, you got to stick it out or surrender. And that grieves me, Bob, that, yeah. that grieves me because, um, that's damage that goes through generations. So I, oh, yeah. I do appreciate that you said there are at times a reason and grounds for leaving the marriage because it is damaging and there's, there's a hardened heart. Well, we we sat, uh, the, the elders at our church and I sat with a wife, a, a godly woman who whose husband was um, regularly abusing substances and was regularly being unfaithful. He was spending nights away from home with the woman that he was with. Um, she came to us and said, what do I do? Mm. And And we were aware, this is where you look and you go, Jesus said that Moses allows for divorce because of the hardness of heart. That's Matthew 19. This was a woman who didn't want to hurt or harm her husband. She wasn't mad at him. She wanted her old husband back. Mm. She wanted to do whatever it would take to try to restore the marriage relationship. But she was also aware of, of the financial risk that she was in with what he was doing, the physical risk she was facing because of what he was doing yeah. and our attempts to confront him, he would just have nothing to do with it. And we said for the purpose, let's, let's hope that, that uh, initiating a divorce would be the wake up call that he would need to see what he's about to lose. Let, let's hope that even after the divorce is final, he might come to his senses and come and say, what have I done? And we could begin a process of trying to restore the relationship. That was her heart. And, and so that's where I think it's so key. And as we're talking about divorce and remarriage, it's so key to say, what's the heart of the other person? If the heart of the other person is cold and hard, and I don't want anything to do with this person anymore. Now we got a, we got a spiritual issue to deal with, with you. But if the person is saying, I, I want my marriage again, I, I want it to be I want the wounds to heal. I, I want to do whatever I can to try to restore it. Uh, in those situations, divorce may be a tool that you use. And I've seen it happen. I've seen couples where post-divorce, they have somebody has awakened and, see, and seen what they lost and come back and said, can we, can we repair the, the breach that has happened? Sometimes that doesn't lead to the marriage being restored. But there can be peace in the relationship again. Um, these are hard matters, and they take they, they take more wisdom than any individual has. It takes godly pastoral wisdom to come alongside you and help you make that decision. And I love that you say that. There's it's it takes wis it requires wisdom, and it 
requires several people involved, close and connected. So as we wrap, I mean, Bob, we could talk so much longer because there's so many facets that that I would love to talk to you about. But as we come to a close, um, speak to that person who is in the backyard looking up at the stars and Mm -hmm. it's August in Phoenix. And they're saying, I I can't see what's going to happen. I don't have any hope. Well, when when hope is gone, uh, you're you're in a hard place. In fact, I I think that's that's the point where people say, because I have no hope, um, I, we're paralyzed. Mm-hmm. A lack of hope leaves us paralyzed. We don't know what to do, and and we think I just have to push this aside and and start over again. I would say. Um, I'll tell you what a friend of mine said. She she was in this situation, hopeless about her marriage. Um, her husband was, she could list all of the things that he had done, was continuing to do. And she sat down with the counselor. And after she had gone through her litany of his sins, her husband's sins, he said to her, let me ask you, he said, do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? And she said, well, yeah, I I believe that. She said, so let me get this straight. You believe that God can take a dead corpse, breathe life into it, and bring resurrection. You believe that, but you don't think God can take a dead marriage and bring it back to life. Is that what you're telling me? And and so when we think, when, when most of the time when couples say, I don't have any hope left, what I say to them is, I don't think you've begun to scratch the surface surface of exhausting all of the avenues for hope that are available to you. Yeah. I, I have you been to marriage intensives? Have you gotten away to meet with counselors for a week? Have you gone to the the weekend to remember retreats that Family Life does? Have you have you had personal counseling? Have have you had individual counseling? Um, I think oftentimes the person who has given up hope is here's what they're saying. As far as I can see, right. I don't see anything. And I'm saying, well, there are people who can see farther than you who may have a perspective on this that you don't have, let's get them involved and let's see if we can't breathe some hope back into this relationship. And yes, there have been hurts. And yes, you're thinking, I can't trust this person anymore. And this is so key because somebody says, how can I be with somebody who I can't trust? Trust is rebuilt with consistent behavior over time. So it can be rebuilt We have to make sure that you have a heart of grace because that person's not going to be perfect going forward. The person that you don't trust, but you can see, you can see that they're, they're different than they used to be. When you start to see that they're different than they used to be, and it's, it's not just a temporary, I'm acting this way for a few days or a few weeks to try to get you back, but you start to see there's been a real change in this person. That's when trust can begin to be rebuilt. That's when hope can start to be rebuilt. And, and I would just say, if you believe that God can raise Jesus from the dead, then there's reason for hope for your marriage. Yep. And sometimes it takes getting to the very end of our ounce of hope. Yes. To then go, Jesus, I've got, I've got to have you because yep. you are the only way we can move forward. Bob, thank you for taking your time <clears throat> to share with us these nuggets of gold, um, these relational 
truths that are so foundational to living well and being married well. Um, you're on social media, I assume, and people can find you there. Where else yeah. can they find your books on Amazon? And yeah, wherever you get books, uh, they're there. So uh, Build a Stronger Marriage is on Amazon or wherever you go to get books. Um, I pastor Redeemer Community Church in Little Rock. And so that's the best way to, to connect with what I'm doing today. Um, the, the sermons are up there and, uh, and folks can get in touch with me through the church. That's fantastic. Thank you again so much for your time. This has meant so much. Uh, it's been a joy for me. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope you'll join us again for future discussions with Colleen and World Influencers. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries. 